Would you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? And we're going to really pick up the pace this morning and actually go through two verses today. (laughs) Father, we do pray that as we do that, that your Holy Spirit might take our hearts and put these truths deep within them, because so often truths are forgotten. And we pray, Lord, that you would weave these into the fabric of our character. In Jesus' name, amen. David Roper gave a clever little poem, and he wrote, Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and happy. My girl looks like a bale of hay. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. But would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. (laughs) Now, we hear that and we think, no, that's not love. That's very shallow. There are many examples of what love is not, the negative side of it. There are certain names that when you hear them, just the very name conjures up the very antithesis of love. They would send a chill up your spine. Timothy McVeigh showed an act that would hardly be called loving when he killed 168 people with the Oklahoma City bombing, 19 of which were babies and toddlers. And he called the babies and toddlers simply collateral damage. Jeffrey Dahmer, who lured 17 men and boys to his apartment killed them, cannibalized them, and then stored their body parts. Susan Smith, who strapped her two children in the back seat of her car and drove it into a lake where they drowned and she survived. Adolf Hitler, killing six million Jews to build up his Aryan race, or Cambodian's leader of the Khmer Rouge, Pol Pot, killing 1.7 million of the elite and the educated to rid his country of modern influences. Those names, we hear them and we think that that, those are the personifications of evil. That is not love. Those are choices that are horrible choices that were made. Those are monsters. I mention those names in particular because those are the very names that were in this article in this last Newsweek And and the title is striking. It says, Evil in big red letters. And underneath, What Makes People Go Wrong? And these very people that I mentioned were featured, but what was striking to me is the article said this, Researchers are reaching a far more chilling conclusion. Most people have the capacity for evil. The traits of temperament and character from which evil springs are as common as flies on carrion. One of those who was interviewed was Robert Simon. He is the professor of psychiatry and law at Georgetown University. And he said, The capacity for evil is a human universal. Within us all are the roots of evil. He continued, The unmistakable lesson is that ordinary, good people, devoted to their families, to their religion and to their country are capable of inflicting horrific 
harm. What the article basically said, as I just mentioned, is what the Bible has said for a long time. This article acknowledged what the Bible would see as the depravity of man. That man has fallen. That we are all sinners by first our nature, second by our choice. And the article simply confirms that. Now, did any of these people that I just mentioned, did they ever love? Do you think Timothy McVeigh or Jeffrey Dahmer or Susan Smith ever said to somebody, I love you? Sure they did. And that's just the point. Those words so easily fall from lips. It's easy to say. It's very hard to do. Verse 5 and 6 we're going to look at this morning. Because love is put again in the negative, what love is not. And just like we could look at those things and say, that is not love, the Apostle says in verse 5, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it thinks no evil, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. When love is present, these certain things are not present, rudeness, selfishness, provocation, outbursts of anger, etc. Notice that uh, love is personified. It says love behaves, love thinks, love rejoices. Now love cannot do that apart from people. Uh, Paul writes this way to make an impact. But this describes loving people. Loving people don't behave rudely. Loving people don't think evil. Loving people don't want their own way. Loving people are not provoked, etc. And so we understand that love, being far more than an emotion or a feeling, it's, it's a set of choices that are made to do and not to do certain activities. Remember that song a few years ago? On every radio station, Tina Turner sang it. What's love got to do with it? What's love? I won't do it. Though I get very tempted. But it would like ruin the whole message. But she said, what's love got to do got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Well, that's so wrong. It's not a secondhand emotion. It's a first hand set of actions. That is the point Paul makes over and over again. It is decisive. And as those people like Dahmer and McVeigh and Smith and Hitler and Pol Pot all did as they made choices to not demonstrate love. But a loving person will make choices not to demonstrate these traits. And so we see that this describes people. This is how loving people behave. This is what loving people want. This is what loving people will withstand. This is what loving people think. And this is what makes loving people happy. And so let's look at these one by one, shall we? How loving people behave. First on the list, love does not behave rudely. There's a whole sermon in just that phrase. Now, when you hear that, love doesn't behave rudely. Don't just think of somebody who's a slob, who slurps his soup or belches or never brushes his teeth. Think of somebody who is insensitive to others. That's the rudeness that Paul has in mind. And I think in his mind, he is thinking about the Corinthians whom he is writing to. 
because they were rude. They were rude at church. Did you know that? A few chapters back, Paul says, now when you guys get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you have communion. And they would have their their potluck suppers, their love feasts. Paul says, in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. Can you imagine being that way at church? Coming in, stuffing yourself, going ahead of others, and then getting drunk. God bless you, brother. At church. When a man was trying to get some peace and quiet by reading the paper in his study, he heard his daughters playing outside with their friends. And they were getting louder and louder and calling each other names. And then they started pulling each other's hair and acting very rude to each other. And he tried to put a stop to it. And his daughter said, It's okay, Daddy. We're just playing church. That could be an example for the Corinthian church. But love does not behave rudely. You see... Real love has a kind of fitness to it. There's tact. Polite. There's an etiquette. You might say love has no unloveliness to it. Whatever happened to words like please, thank you, excuse me, sir, ma'am. Oh yeah, those are those ancient words. Yeah, unfortunately. Just common courtesy. And also, I would say that... um, Among some believers, Christians, there is an odd, weird, awkward sort of holiness among some. Some think that to be holy is to act unlovely, to point fingers, to have the furrowed brow. We make so much about grace, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But what happens after you're saved? Why does grace suddenly leave the church? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that is keeping a wretch like me as well. We talk so much about grace before salvation, but what about afterwards? We can become very peevish and small and and unforgiving. But love doesn't behave rudely. And William Barclay translated this verse, Love does not behave gracelessly. In other words, love is gracious. There's a grace to those who exercise it. We humans, um, we will act rude sometimes, and then we will, we will justify our rudeness. We have a good reason to be rude, you see. And we, then we give our rationale. Now, now, you know what that's like. When you have children, and they grow up, and self comes out, and... They do something wrong. Then then they say, well, that's because he did this. That's why I did that. I'm rude because my brother or sister or you, my parents. And then what's really bad about that is that we don't seem to lose that in adolescence. We just sort of hang on to that through adulthood and continue to make rationale about being rude. I decided to ask a couple of my assistant pastors this week about Um, the crowd management around here and and what it's like between services. I said, uh, uh, what are people like? And this isn't everyone. Just do do you ever get anybody that's rude? Now, of course, not this service. This is, (laughs) you're completely exempted from any of this. This would not apply to any of us. 
They said, Skip, you wouldn't believe what we hear. One said, I've had people stand in the back and cuss me out as they're making their way into church. A couple of people threaten violence. And some of them, they told me, while their children are next to them. You let my child in church or I'm going to take you out. Now, now what kind of a legacy is that? Son, I just want you to remember, I beat up that usher to get you into church when you were younger. (laughs) How rude. How rude. How thoughtless. How careless. And what are you passing on to your kids? You hear about the uh, little boy who was driving with his father, and his father was a very vocal driver, a very short-tempered, swore, fumed at all the other drivers on the road. And uh, they took a drive one day, came back home later that afternoon. Mom took the same child for a drive, very peaceful, calm, serene drive. Finally, the young boy spoke up, Mom, where are all the idiots? She said, pardon me? He goes, yeah, we counted seven of them this morning when I was with Dad. You know that Christians can ruin their testimony by being rude? Unbelievers hear it, watch it. You can totally spoil your representation of Christ to an unbeliever by rudeness. Just like you can enhance it by politeness. I'm going to read a story to you, and I want you just to take a fresh listen to this. It comes out of the Gospel of Luke. It's the night Jesus was invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in that city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Did you notice he said that to himself? This is his thought life. And that's very interesting because it says, Jesus answered him, which must have blown his mind. (laughs) Simon, I I have something to say to you. Master, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 And when they had nothing with which to pay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you've rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That was common courtesy that was withheld. Every host would wash the feet of his guest or have it done. But she's washed my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. Again, common courtesy, withheld. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. She loved much. 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. What Jesus is saying to this Pharisee is, Simon, you were rude. You showed me no common courtesy. All the things that you should normally, naturally, you completely withheld from me. And you judge this woman in your thoughts. And I'm going to tell you something, Simon. It's not this woman's presence. It's not her attitude that is the problem. It is yours, Mr. Spiritual Man. He's the Pharisee. He's the spiritual leader. But it was his rudeness of a spiritual man that that ruined his witness before this unspiritual woman. Sour looks, complaining words, all of those negative comments that are made only make unbelievers glad to be unbelievers and not a believer. Nothing to attract them. So love isn't rude. Second on the list, this is what loving people want. This is what loving people want. What do they look after? What do they seek? Love does not seek its own. In other words, it's not selfish, self-consumed, doesn't think about its own way. How can I get my way? What about my rights? How often have you heard that phrase in the last months, years? I have every right. My personal rights. You know where that started? With Adam and Eve. That's where this whole thing about seeking its own started, way back in the garden. Personal rights. You see, Adam and Eve, for some reason, felt like like their personal rights were being hindered by God. Because God said, I'm giving you all of this garden. You can freely eat of it except one tree. Stay away from that one. Why should we stay away from that one? If you're a God of love, why should we stay away? What are you hiding from us? God is taking away my right to that tree. And so they consulted the Garden of Eden, ACLU. (laughs) Whose president at that time was the devil himself. We wonder if he perhaps still is. And the devil said, well, it's all about you. You do have the right. You ought to be able to satisfy yourself the way you see fit. And a new religion was born called self. Self replaced God. And it's continued with us ever since. But is that the way of love? Is that the way of Christ? No, it's the opposite of Christ. It's the opposite of love. Love doesn't seek its own. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but you should also look to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what was the attitude of Christ Jesus? Did he seek his own? Now, if Jesus was seeking his own, he never would have left heaven. Why come here? Enjoy the private bastion of glory and and great love. Why would I come to earth? Because love doesn't seek its own. And you could write that phrase, love doesn't seek its own, right over the, the manger in Bethlehem. Because that's where God poured himself out and became a person, a man. You could write this phrase, love doesn't seek its own over the entire earthly ministry of Jesus because he'd go from village to village, town to town, place to place, and cure disease, forgive sin, love unloving people. And he even said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. And you could write this phrase, love doesn't seek its own, right over the cross, couldn't you? Because that's where he atoned for sin. 
All of the nails in Jerusalem could not have kept Jesus on that cross. It was love that put him on the cross, kept him on the cross. It was self-sacrificing love that doesn't seek its own but seeks others. That's what made him die. But selfishness is a world religion. It's the biggest religion of all of them. They say, well, Muslim, Islam is the fastest, or Christianity. No, no, no. Self-ism is the world's biggest religion. And everybody, of course, has his or her own rationale for it. There was a pilot who was in his private plane flying three, three people. Aboard his plane, there was a minister, a boy scout, and a genius. The plane encountered some turbulence and then some problems. It was going down. Pilot couldn't do anything about it. So he turned to his guests and he said, Gentlemen, we have three parachutes aboard, but there are four of us. Now, I have to take one, being the pilot, because I have a wife and three kids. And before they could argue, he grabbed one and jumped. Then the genius spoke up. He said, well, I'm the smartest person in the world and everybody needs me. So he grabbed one and jumped. Now there were two left, the minister and the Boy Scout. The minister said, young man, I've lived a full and rich life. I know where I'm going. I'm going to go down with the plane. You take the other parachute. The Boy Scout said, Reverend, relax. The smartest guy in the world just took my backpack and jumped out. You know, we hear that and we go, well, good. And it proves a point. Self-oriented, self-centered people aren't missed when they go. Others-oriented people are greatly missed when they leave because they add so much. I hear there's a tombstone somewhere in a village church in England that reads, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now, where he is now or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. We now have the third on this list. This is what loving people will withstand. He writes, love is not provoked. I like the amplified rendering. Love isn't touchy. Love isn't touchy. It's not easily irritated. It has a good temper. Uh, the Greek word that is used here for provoked is paroxuno. Gives us the English word paroxysm. We know what that is. It's a fit. A fit of anger. Blowing up into an emotional rage. This is what Paul is saying. A person who loves doesn't get bristled by every little inconvenience. Is not easily annoyed or easily offended. When I was a boy, I had a very bad temper. It got me into trouble. It got me into a lot of trouble with my parents. And you know why I had a temper? Here's the reason. I was selfish. That's exactly why I had a temper. It was all about me, all about my needs, all about my little world. And uh, those kind of people are very difficult to live with. I know last night when I gave this message, and this was a live broadcast on 300 radio stations, my mom was listening to that message in California, and I could just feel her nod. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, third president of Princeton University, one of the most brilliant Americans ever, 
a great believer in the faith in Jesus Christ. He had a uh, he had a daughter. They say had an uncontrollable temper. Nobody knew it. They managed to sort of keep it from everybody's purview until a young man fell in love with her and came to Jonathan Edwards and said, I love your daughter. I want her hand in marriage. And Edwards said, can't have her. He said, what do you mean I can't have her? I love her. She loves me. Edwards was more adamant. You can't have her. Why not? Because, said Edwards, she's not worthy of you. What? said the young man, not worthy of me, but I'm a Christian. She's a Christian. And Edward said, that's true, but young man, the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. (laughs) Don't be one of those people that only God's grace can put up with you. Because here's the thing. When you experience God's grace, you ought to become gracious. It ought to rub off a little bit. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. It ought to make us less touchy, less irritable. I know you can rationalize it and say, well, I just, I lose my temper, granted, but I'm Irish, or I'm Italian, or I'm Hispanic, or I'm German, or whatever. (laughs) We all have our backgrounds that give us the reason for being angry. I lose my temper, but it's over in, in a few minutes. Well, so is an atom bomb. You can do a lot of damage in a few minutes. There can be lots of relational fallout that occur with that kind of wrath. So you can tell your wife all day long, I love you, I love you. But if you fly off the handle at her all the time, you just went against what you said. You can tell your children, oh, I love you. But then you're always irritated at them and annoyed. It cancels out the message. Love is not provoked. Now, just in case... I I can hear a few questions bouncing around in brains. Well, what about righteous indignation? We love to go to those verses when you hear this kind of a message. What about, you know, Jesus, he got angry. I remember the Bible says a couple of times that he went into the temple and he overturned the tables and took a whip and drove them out. What was that about? Well, why did he do it? Was he just having a bad halo day? (laughs) No, Jesus never reacted to others offending him personally. He was upholding the glory of God. He was provoking the worship of God in his father's house. My father's house shall be a house of prayer. That's what that was about. The Bible does tell us that there are certain things we ought to be angry about. After all, there's a commandment. Be angry and sin not. So, Anger is justified towards sin, but never in a way that it should be manifested in a sinful behavior. Be angry, but do not sin, said Paul. I, uh, I, read, a, I read an advertisement. It fascinated me. And uh, it, it was by a guy who just got sick and tired of smokers blowing their smoke in his face. He hated secondhand smoke. So he decided to come up with a product. He was selling it for $3.99 called Revenge. A little aerosol can, 75 squirts of a foul-smelling disinfectant designed to irritate the nose and the eyes of the smoker, to give them back a little bit of what they have given out. Now, some may hear that and say, well, it's just righteous indignation. No, 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 it's unrighteous retaliation. I admit it sounds fun, but that certainly is not love. 
If you're familiar with golf, you know what a sweet spot is on the club. It's that little portion of the club where you ought to hit the ball so that the velocity and trajectory is just right. So it didn't go this way, that way, but that way. The sweet spot. The old days, the clubs had a very tiny sweet spot. Today, they've redesigned them. Clubs are lighter, bigger. I mean, some of them are like huge. You can't miss the ball. The backs are hollowed out. And a professional will show you a modern club and say, and these are the words they will use, these clubs are more forgiving than the old kind of clubs because they have an expanded sweet spot. By virtue of the design, the sweet spot, the area where you ought to hit is bigger. And I hear that and I think, you know, that's how Christians ought to be. We ought to have a a pretty good-sized sweet spot. We shouldn't be like the old clubs where they demand near-perfect performance. But there's that sweetness about us, generous with the faults of others. Fourth in this short little list, this is what loving people think. That's the word he uses. Love thinks no evil. That could mean a couple things. It could mean, number one, that people who love are eager to believe the best. We are, we are willing to think the highest when we see somebody do something or hear some rumor about someone. We, we don't automatically think the worst. We don't preconceive. We don't have a, a second-guessing mentality. We think the highest. Love doesn't think evil. One little boy walked into a department store, the lingerie department, to buy his mommy a gift. And little boy went right up to the clerk and said, I want to buy a, he was, face was red when he said it, I want to buy a slip for my mama. And he thought, what am I doing? You know, he, said, he did it, but it was embarrassing. So the clerk said, well, young man, what's her size? Little boy said, I don't know her size. Well, the clerk said, well, it would help if you could just tell me is she Is she thin? Is she fatter? Is she taller? Is she shorter? Little boy thought and he said, well, she's she's just about perfect. So the clerk handed the boy a size 34 slip. Boy went home. This was in a newspaper. The news article continued and said that the, the mother had to return the slip for a larger size. She needed a size 52. But her little boy saw her not as as a measuring tape would see her. But she's perfect. Love doesn't think evil. There's another way to to view this. Uh, This could also mean that, that loving people don't hold on in their minds to evil. Evil that's done to them. They don't they don't grab a hold of it and form a grudge out of it. That's why some of your translations say love keeps no record of wrongs. That could be a good translation. Because the Greek word is logizomai, logic, means to contemplate. Uh, It means to calculate. It was a word that was used in bookkeeping endeavors, as if to record something, to figure something as a ledger entry. Your mind is like a ledger. It records things. But you can keep them in the active file or the inactive file. The reason you record something in a ledger is so you can refer back to it later on. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. The most miserable people I know are those who keep a running tab of every evil 
thing that has been done to them. That is not love. A couple came in for counseling and said to the pastor, we need marital counseling. The husband began. He said, you know, every time my wife and I have a disagreement, an argument, a fight, she, she gets historical. <laughs> pastor smiled and said, I, I think you mean hysterical. He goes, oh, no, no, no. She, she's historical. She's always digging up my past. But love doesn't get historical or hysterical. It's willing to forget. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'll forgive, but I can never forget? Oh, yes, you can. That's a choice. It depends on where in the ledger you place the wrong. I'm not saying you can control every thought you have, but you can decide what you do with that thought when it comes. And I, I give you as an example God himself. Do you think God ever forgets anything you've ever done? Of course not. He's, he's God. He's omniscient. But listen to what he does with them. In the book of Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament, the author said, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Romans 4.8, quoting Psalm 32, What joy for those whose sin is no longer counted against them by the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Resentment keeps careful books. Love keeps no books. Love's favorite key on the keyboard of the computer is delete. Push it. Five, and finally, this is, this is what loving people get happy about. What makes them happy? They don't rejoice in iniquity, but they rejoice in the truth. Maybe this means our own personal sin, our own personal iniquity. I've seen people sort of talk about their wickedness as if it's really cool. They talk about past sexual exploits. Talk about how mean they were. I showed them. Well, that's not love. And, and frankly, I've even heard some testimonies like that. I listen to them and I think, that's not a testimony. That's a bragamony. I used to do this and I used to be so bad. Let me tell you how bad I was. And it's kind of glorifying the flesh. Oh, by the way, <clears throat> I was saved. Well, talk about that more. That's where your testimony begins. How have you changed? Or this could mean, when it says love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, it doesn't rejoice in, in others' iniquities. When other people fall, when they fail, when something bad happens to somebody, they don't go, <laughs> that's cool. One of the most common forms of rejoicing in iniquity is called gossip. The very sin Christians often treat so lightly. And all gossip is, is rejoicing in iniquity. All it is, is being willing to believe the worst, gloating over somebody's shortcomings. Now, I'm going to say something that might step on a few toes, but that's never stopped me before. <laughs> I believe that many of the movies that are seen are designed to get us to rejoice in iniquity. Because the heroes are often the thieves or the adulterers or somebody doing some activity that certainly isn't righteous, but we laugh at them and we cheer them on and we're rejoicing. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth, in justice, 
and seeing someone blessed. That's love. So, we should be careful not to judge, not to prejudge, not to have preconceptions or second guesses or think evil, but to think the highest. We shouldn't act or react upon gossip or limited information. Because that's not love. Love is elevating. I'll close with this. There was a gal. She was traveling in an airport. She got off one plane, had, had a layover, and was going to get on another plane. She goes to a little snack shop, buys a package of cookies, sits down at a table in the snack shop, grabs a newspaper, and is reading. When she hears a rustling noise, and she peers her eyes over the newspaper and sees across the same table from her a well-dressed gentleman eating her cookies. He just put his hand in, grabbed them. Didn't say a word. She thought, how rude. How dare he? But she didn't say anything. All she did is kind of look indignant. She put her hand out with a little bag of cookies and just moved them a few inches toward her side of the table, as if to say, my side, your side. She grabbed a cookie, ate it, kept reading her paper. A minute later, she heard a rustling noise again. He was reaching all the way over, grabbed a cookie, ate it. Now she's just thinking the worst possible thoughts. Well, this goes on until there's one cookie left. And as if to add insult to injury, the guy takes the last cookie, breaks it in half, eats half, and pushes the half over to her side. <laughs> she grabs it, eats it, walks away. The other guy walks away. She's going to her plane now because they called her plane, her flight. She looks into her purse to get her boarding pass, and there she sees her unopened package of cookies. Those weren't her cookies. But she realized now there's some well-dressed gentleman who is wondering how that woman could be so rude to eat his cookies. What a challenge to love, isn't it? And you know what? Doesn't God give us enough of those challenges? Final thought, let it sink in. God knows everything about you and loves you anyway. God looks at your life and sees all of the past and he's got his hand ready to push the delete key. Not, I'm going to make backups of this, but delete. All he's waiting for is, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm a sinner. I admit There's a lot of errors on this disc. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Delete. That's what he's waiting for. Father, we pray that we would be quick to confess. Quick to look to you who embody these characteristics we just read. Lord, I pray that we would deal vertically with you by asking you to forgive us. And if we've never done that in the past, to make it a a decision today for life. And then, Lord, as we leave this auditorium and as we are given several opportunities to have our love tested, remind us of these phrases. Various times throughout the week, love isn't easily provoked. Love isn't rude. 
Love doesn't want its own way. Remind us and then help us to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.